Father in heaven, thank you so much for being with us today for the blessing of the Sabbath and for the blessing of the word that you have given to us to instruct us, to reprove and rebuke us and admonish us into holy living. And Lord, as we discuss this uh, solemn topic, serious topic about spiritualism and the devil's end time deceptions, we pray that your Holy Spirit will illumine us, give us clarity of thinking, give us uh, spiritual eyesight to see for spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So hear this prayer and guide us now in this study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to review just a few points from our morning discussion, we talked about the first spiritualist encounter found in the Bible, and that is when Eve encountered the serpent in the Garden of Eden at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we broke this experience down into overt and discrete spiritualism. Overt spiritualism is dealing with uh, the idea that we can engage with the supernatural. And the foundation of this belief comes from the lie that the devil told at the tree that ye shall not surely die. So the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And it uh, leads into various beliefs like paganism and witchcraft and the occult and also the uh, Christian flavor of it would be the idea that the soul goes to heaven right when we die and that we can commune with those people who have passed away. And uh, I know that Halloween is coming up soon, and I, I didn't mention it this morning, but I'm sure it crossed many of your minds. Uh, and speaking about spiritualism, in the overt sense, you can see the uh, comfort level, uh, the popularity of spiritualism and, and the supernatural and ghouls and goblins and ghosts and things like that every time Halloween turn, comes around. And I just want to mention on Audioverse last week, we posted a, an excellent message by Dr. Eric Walsh, also I know a friend of Av, uh, Hope, uh, entitled Bewitched, Halloween and the Rise of Spiritualism. And he does an excellent job breaking down the trends of spiritualism, and I would say the overt flavor of spiritualism that we see in our society today. It's very good, and I think it actually is an excellent pairing with uh, the series of studies that we're doing this week, today, with, uh, with you here at Avon Hope. Uh, but the second part of that spiritualistic encounter is what I call discrete spiritualism. And it is represented by Satan speaking through the medium of the serpent uh, to an un unwitting woman, right? The Eve did not know that she was speaking with the devil. And so discrete spiritualism represents that type of spiritualism where people are encountering the supernatural without knowing it. And this morning, as well as uh, this afternoon, this presentation now, we're going to be focusing, uh, emphasizing particularly on the discrete form of spiritualism. We also read this quote in Great Controversy, page 516, that says, None are in greater danger from the influence of evil angels than those who, notwithstanding the direct and ample testimony of the scriptures, deny the existence and agency of the devil and his angels. So long as we are ignorant of their wiles, they have almost inconceivable advantage. Many give heed to their suggestions while they suppose themselves to be following the dictates of their own wisdom. And so we saw here that this described a class of people who are uh, the most susceptible to the influence of evil angels. And these are people who are the non-superstitious, if I could call them that, or the more common term is the secularist, people who don't believe in the supernatural, 
we're told that they are the most at risk to be uh, influenced by spiritualism. And this is a very key point uh, for where we are going with our study this afternoon. And it talks about brilliant people, smart people who think that the ideas that they have originated from themselves, but in actuality, unknowingly, they have been influenced by the devil himself. So this is the very important key uh, idea we want to keep in mind. And the passage continues, the same paragraph. This is why as we approach the close of time, when Satan is to work with greatest power to deceive and destroy, he spreads everywhere the belief that he does not exist. It is his policy to conceal himself and his manner of working. And again, this ties right into what we were just talking about. Satan, we frequently associate with overt spiritualistic manifestations. We think that the devil is at his most powerful when he's you know, possessing people through demon possession or through mysticism or through the occult or magic or voodoo or these types of things. But in actuality, according to this passage, Satan has a different preference. He prefers a secular environment in which he does not factor into the consciousness at all in which he's just ruled out as superstition and that he, you know, is not a threat. So uh, this is an important point as well. Now, we also looked at this passage from Great Controversy 556. It says, The very name of witchcraft is now held in contempt. The claim that men can hold intercourse with evil spirits is regarded as a fable of the Dark Ages. So again, we're talking about a climate in society in which a belief in the supernatural, especially evil spirits and the, de- the devil and demons, is be- viewed as uh, silly superstition, as hocus pocus, uh, you know, it's like believing in Santa Claus. But we continue reading, but spiritualism, which numbers its converts by hundreds of thousands, yea, by millions, which has made its way into scientific circles, which has invaded churches and has found favor in legislative bodies and even in the courts of kings, this mammoth deception is but a revival in a new disguise of the witchcraft condemned and prohibited of old. And so, yes, spiritualism may exist in the sense that there are you know, secret societies and there are individuals that are in touch with the you know, spirit world while they hide it to the viewing public. But nevertheless, the way that this passage is constructed about how there are millions of spiritualists uh, around the world and that they seemingly uh, hold witchcraft and and this belief in evil spirits in contempt, uh, it seems to suggest that there are plenty of people who actually are under the influence of spiritualism without knowing it and without knowing it all the while in a culture of secularism. And also, you know, this also to highlight this point is the idea that it has found its way into scientific circles, which we discussed this morning by its very uh, definition nowadays is a naturalistic type of um, realm of study. uh, And it just precludes the existence of the supernatural. And then also even in the area of uh, legislation, of uh, bodies of government, and also the courts of kings, And we're going to be dealing with that a little bit as well this afternoon. And then we also read this passage from 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 
So the Bible warns us in no uncertain terms that in the end times, there will be those in the church who will leave, uh, who will apostatize because of spiritualism. And so to review what we've talked about, basically, here's the summary of what we went over this morning, at least some of the points from this morning that uh, will lay the foundation for where we're going this afternoon, and that is spiritualism may be manifested overtly or discreetly. Spiritualism affects especially those who don't believe in the supernatural. And spiritualism is pervasive in all levels of society. Spiritualism will affect the church. And finally, spiritualism is the means to transmit the doctrines of devils. And this idea of the doctrines of devils is a, is a good transition to the heart of what we're going to discuss this afternoon. And that is this morning we were using the metaphor of a pandemic to illustrate how spiritualism is communicated, how it is spread uh, throughout society. But we never really dove into the question of what is it transmitting, right? We know the means of transmission, uh, but what's the actual virus, right? What's the actual virus of spiritualism? So if you think of it this way, spiritualism is merely the mechanism by which ideas and beliefs uh, are communicated. And we saw this morning that there's first degree, second degree, third degree, you know, there's community spread, asymptomatic spread, you know, all of those things we discussed already of how spiritualism spreads. But now we want to talk about what's the actual pathogen, what's the actual virus that's being communicated or transmitted uh, through spiritualism. And to answer that question, we need to go right back to our uh, theme text, the foundational text for our study today. That's in Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. We talked about verse 4 this morning and discussed that, so now we're going to focus on verse 5. But we need to really think about this, the context of what happened or, or the context in which this exchange occurred in Eden. Satan was restricted from harassing Adam and Eve. There was only one place in the entire universe where Satan has access to mankind. And it was at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the story. Eve came alone uh, to the tree and she engaged the serpent in dialogue. Now, in Satan's minds, this might have been the only chance that he had to influence Eve. This might be the only opportunity he has to, to enact his grand plan to make humans fall. So he must have concocted and thought through with his you know, Luciferian intellect, like, what's the most potent deception I can, you know, I can use here to deceive Eve? And of course, you know, we talked about Spiritualism, ye shall not surely die, that certainly is the core aspect of this. But what is the lie in the second half of this passage? Well, the core of it is simply, you shall be as gods. That's the core of the message of what Lucifer was trying to communicate to Eve. That's the hook. That's the bait that he was uh, baiting his hook with. And so 
he, he supplements this with a few other ideas, right? That God is hiding something from you. He knows that if you eat this, you're going to be like him. So it questions, you know, undermines God's character. But it's because of the potential for Eve to be as God's. And then knowing good and evil, it cannot simply merely mean you will then know what good and evil is on an intellectual or academic level. Eve was intelligent. She had a perfect unfallen mind. She could intellectually understand good and evil. But what is, what is um, the Satan actually saying? He's saying, you shall be as gods insofar that you no longer need God as the arbiter of right and wrong. You can determine what's good and evil for yourself. And that ultimately is what Lucifer says is the essence of being as God. So the deception, the core deception that Satan was uh, communicating through the spiritualistic encounter here at the tree was that mankind can usurp their creator. And for all of you Bible scholars out there, you must be thinking, hmm, that sentiment sounds familiar. And if that's what you're thinking, you are absolutely correct because of what we read in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will be like the Most High. Satan believed the same thing. So what Satan was trying to convince Eve of was merely the same lie that he fell prey to himself. Satan believed that he could be as God. He believed that he could be like the Most High to usurp the Creator, that he can be the moral arbiter of right and wrong for himself, and he no longer needs to be under the authority of God and his moral standard and his moral law. To confirm this, this is what it says in Great Controversy, page 554. Satan beguiles men now as he beguiled Eve in Eden. Notice carefully, the deception that Satan uses, uh, used for Eve, he's still using it today. The same deception. By flattery, by kindling a desire to obtain forbidden knowledge, by exciting uh, ambition for self-exaltation, it was cherishing these evils that caused his fall. And through them, he aims to compass the ruin of men. So there it is. Lucifer is simply trying to get man to believe the same lies that he believed that caused his fall. Well, what are those lies? What are those ideas? You shall be as gods, he declares, knowing good and evil. That's Genesis 3.5. Spiritualism teaches, notice carefully, that man is the creature of progression, that it is his destiny from his birth to progress even to eternity toward the Godhead. Continuing, and again, each mind will judge itself and not another. Thus, in place of the righteousness and perfection of the infinite God, Satan has substituted the sinful, erring nature of man himself as the only object of adoration, the only rule of judgment or standard of character. This is progress not upward, but downward. So the spirit of prophecy in Great Controversy makes it very clear. The essence, the virus of spiritualism, the, the core of it, is the deception that man can take the place of God. Man can be God. 
And, and what does that mean? It means man can be our own standard of character, our own rule of judgment, our own moral standard, rather than God and his moral law. So let's encapsulate this. Spiritualism is the means by which Satan seeks to transform man into his image. That's it. That's the key point of spiritualism I want to communicate. And what is the image of Satan? Well, the image of Satan is the desire to usurp our creator, the rebel who wants to take the place of his creator. That's what the essence, the character of Satan is. In spiritualism and all of its various types of manifestations, overt or discreet, is merely the vehicle. It's the mechanism of transmission by which to accomplish this transformation. Another way to think about it is that Satan loves to just counterfeit the truth. And in this regard, it is a counterfeit, spiritualism is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to dwell in us, the indwelling of Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit transforms us into the image of Jesus, into his likeness, right? That's the whole essence of Christianity, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Spiritualism simply counterfeits that. Satan wants to imbue us with his spirit so that we, through this means, will be transformed into his image, his image of rebellion against our creator and to usurp our God. And so we've been talking about the metaphor of a, of a pandemic, and I'm going to continue with that metaphor here. And just like COVID-19, we cannot always see, you know, in the case of community spread and asymptomatic spread, we cannot always see how the pathogen, how the virus is actually transmitted. We may not know where we picked it up, right? Like, was it at a certain location, you know, or a surface we touched or through the air? We, we don't fully know. However, we have tests. We have tests that can identify whether a virus has been through there, whether an infection exists, right? And the test is looking for a viral marker. And so the viral marker is usually, uh, sometimes, but in the case of COVID-19, it's a piece of genetic material, you know, RNA or, you know, DNA. And, and so when we can identify that a viral marker, that the virus has been through here, we can know that the virus, the pandemic has actually reached here. So in the same way, when we're talking and thinking about spiritualism, it is going to be well nigh impossible for us to identify precisely where the transmission originated. And we talked about why that's the case this, in this morning's presentation. However, we can have a test to identify if the viral marker exists to know if the infection of the virus of spiritualism is present. And what's the viral marker? The viral marker is a piece, a little snippet of Satan's DNA. And what is that? It's this, it's simply this idea that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. This idea that man can be as God. Whenever we see this idea in a belief system that is held onto and, and um, adopted, we can know that the effect of spiritualism uh, is present, that the infection is there even if we don't know where it came from. So we also read this passage in Revelation chapter 12, how the great dragon was cast out and that old serpent called the devil, uh, devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, was cast into the earth, and that this dragon, also called the serpent, is going to make war with the remnant of her seed. 
So we know that the serpent is going represents spiritualism, right? That's a direct, uh, a, a direct reference back to Genesis three in the garden. And so we see that at the end of time, this war between uh, Satan and the remnant of her seed, spiritualism is going to play a part. And so the question now is, can we identify the viral marker of spiritualism in the end time characters that's going to play a part in the last great conflict, in the war that the serpent is waging? Can we identify uh, Satan's DNA? So let's take a look. We understand that the papacy, the Antichrist, uh, the little horn power, the man of sin, you know, so many different names for it, uh, is going to be one of the prime movers and shakers in the final event. So let's see if we can identify uh, spiritualism's viral marker in the papacy. Daniel 7, 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until time and times and the dividing of time. So the papacy here is described as changing God's times and God's laws. That sounds a little bit like taking the place of God and replacing God's moral standards with uh, man's moral standards. But 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 makes it even more explicit. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There you have it. That is a carbon copy. That is you know, um, uh, a reflection, direct reflection of the character of Satan. We can see right here, the papacy contains Satan's DNA, the spiritualism's viral marker. And it's even more explicit than that. Revelation 13, 2 tells us that the dragon or Satan gave him or the papacy his power and his seat and great authority. So clearly Satan has direct influence over the papacy. Uh, great Controversy, page 268 says, in many of the nations of Europe, the powers that ruled in church and state had for centuries been controlled by Satan through the medium of the papacy. So there's that word again, medium. Satan influencing uh, the whole of Europe through the medium of the papacy. So this is definitely spiritualistic language going on here. And we can certainly identify the spiritualism's viral marker in the papacy. But what about secularism? Earlier, right at the beginning, we reviewed those quotes where we stated, where the spirit of prophecy stated that secularists, those who deny the spirit, uh, the supernatural, are the most susceptible to the influence of evil angels. And so we want to test that statement right now to see if we can identify the viral marker of spiritualism within the common commonly held secular belief systems, okay? So atheism, skepticism, naturalism, evolution, there could be plenty of other isms that we throw in here, but I think this is uh, representative of what we're talking about. It says there is no God. That's the belief. And that we are the results of pure naturalistic processes. Therefore, there is no divine lawgiver. And man's reason is supreme. So that's the natural logic flowing out of this idea that there is no God. Well, who is God in that case? Hmm. Hedonism and sensualism teaches that selfish pleasure-seeking, worldliness, and licentiousness uh, is the ultimate goal. Our pleasure is the greatest 
objective. Okay, again, in this philosophy, who is God? And then there's postmodernism, which says there is no objective truth. There is only my truth. And only my subjective lived experience is true. And again, in this scenario, who is God? It's interesting because we now live in a postmodern society. Postmodern view, philosophy is really the cultural water in which we swim today. And in Western society, I think, you know, popular culture, certainly academia and, and many fields, it's largely become a default worldview. And it leads to the question that I've been asking, well, in all of these scenarios, who is God? Man is designed to worship something. We're going to worship something. And so when God is removed out of the equation, the only logical conclusion based on what we see here is that we worship ourselves. And does that not sound an awful lot like the lie that you shall be as God's? I found this passage very enlightening from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 297. I was directed to this scripture as especially applying to modern spiritualism. That's what Ellen White is saying. She was shown that Colossians 2 verse 8 has special application to modern day spiritualism. Okay, so what does it say? Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments or principles of the world, and not after Christ. What does this statement say? It says modern spiritualism has more to do with philosophies, ideologies, and worldviews than merely the mode of transmission or the actual spiritualistic manifestations themselves. Okay, you, I hope you catch this connection because this is very crucial. When we think about spiritualism, we're frequently enamored with the actual manifestations. Oh, there's an apparition here. Someone says they saw a ghost here. That person had an out-of-body experience there. There's black magic and voodoo going on over here. And we, we, we think about, you know, in the end times, oh, when the devil impersonates you know, the saints and, and uh, fire comes down from heaven and miracle healings and uh, all of these things we associate as that's the sum and total of spiritualism. But this statement from the spirit of prophecy and the Bible tells us what's more important for us to consider about spiritualism is the underlying belief system that grows out of it, Okay. So it's not so much the mode of transmission, but what the infection is at the end, okay? That's the key idea I want to leave with you uh, from this passage. So I want to review a little bit, uh, go back to the Church of Satan. We mentioned it this morning, and I want to go back and look again at the FAQ on their website. The Church of Satan, we assume, worships Satan, but what do they say? Why do Satanists worship the devil? They say, we don't. And this is, again, the FAQ from their website. Satanists are atheists. We see the universe as being indifferent to us. And so, notice carefully, all, moral and all morals and values are subjective human constructions. Our position is to be self-centered with ourselves being the most important person, the God. They literally put that in their statement here. They consider themselves the God of our subjective universe. So we are sometimes said to worship ourselves. Now, does that sound remarkably similar to what 
uh, Satan was trying to deceive Eve of in the garden? I say it mirrors precisely the serpent's lie to Eve that you can be as gods. And all the while, the church of Satan denies that Satan exists at all. They clearly carry Satan's DNA, the viral marker of spiritualism. They consider themselves a secular atheistic religion. It's so oxymoronic, but nevertheless, it confirms what we read in the beginning, that those who deny the existence of Satan are the most susceptible to his lies. And I had a little question that came in earlier, and I need to make this clarification. And that is, when I talk about the church of Satan, it is distinct from pagan religions, witchcraft, the occult, and and those types of spiritualistic, uh, superstitious belief systems. They're two distinct groups, okay? So I don't want to uh, get them mixed up because there are occultists and demon worshipers and those who really do believe in the supernatural and they actually do worship the devil, uh, but they're not the church of Satan. They're, they're the occult and they have different names. But doesn't mean that they're any less dangerous, right? Uh, but I just need to make that distinction because there is the church of Satan, which is a secular branch, and then there's the pagan branch of the occult and all the uh, witchcraft and things that go down that line. Now, also, we talked about the Satanic Temple, which is uh, another uh, Satanic religion. It is not the same as the Church of Satan, but on the same token, on their website, they asked a question, the FAQ, they asked a question, what does Satan mean to the Satanic Temple? Satan is a symbol of the eternal rebel in opposition to arbitrary authority, forever defending personal sovereignty, even in the face of insurmountable odds. Satan is an icon for the unbowed will of the unsilenced inquirer, the heretic who questions sacred laws and rejects all tyrannical impositions. Both these satanic religions reflect the prevailing postmodern view that everything is based on our subjective views on life. Subjective morality, everything is up to us. It reflects Satan's lie to Eve. And Satan to them, we see here, is an icon. He, they don't believe that he exists. They, be, they don't believe that uh, Satan is a personal being, but they view him sort of like Zeus in Greek mythology. He's a representation. He's a mythological figure that represents the values that they uphold, that they hold dear. And what are those values? The values is a rejection of divine authority and morality. And basically, that man is the center of the universe, that we can be as God, knowing good and evil. That's what they believe. Now, you might be thinking, now that's nice and all, but these satanic religions are not exactly representative of broader society or even broader culture. We don't see a satanic temple or a church of Satan on every street corner in the city. Uh, Well, you're right about that. Uh, I think it was still helpful to illustrate my point but now let's transition and let's ask the question. So do we, can we see Satan's viral marker or spiritualism's viral marker in broader culture? Can we see this notion that man can be as gods, that we don't need uh, him to be a moral uh, standard in broader culture? Well, let's take a look. What about this? Disney's Frozen. I think I don't even need to ask, uh, lest I embarrass anyone, right? But We all know about this movie. It's one of the most popular movies of all time, right? Definitely one of the most famous, uh, most popular animated movies. But, uh, and a lot of it has to do with this song, right? Let it go. This amazing, you know, 
big throated ballad in the middle of the of the movie and how many parent you know and children and teacher and everyone they've all heard this right and many people probably haven't memorized but it's an anthem it's become an anthem of an entire generation and at the near the climax of the song what does the song say no right no wrong no rules for me i'm free and if you listen to the essence of the whole song it's a song of rebellion it's a song of rebellion against established norms, of rejecting authority. It's living according to your truth, making your own rules. Uh, and, and really, it's about freedom and empowerment via rebellion and relativism. That's really the core ethos of this song. And it's become the anthem uh, or theme song of an entire postmodern generation. So... Do we? Back to our question. So can we see the viral marker of spiritualism in the culture around us? I think it would be foolish for us to deny that it's there. But now, we're still on the topic of secularism and spiritualism, but I want to turn our attention back to the Bible. We've talked about culture and society, but does the Bible make a connection between secularism and spiritualism? Is that connection in Scripture? Well, for that, let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7. This is a passage, Revelation chapter 11, is talking about the French Revolution. Uh, You need to remember chapter 11 of Revelation. It'll come back in a little bit. But what does it say in verse 7? And when they, the two witnesses of God, shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So the beast in Bible prophecy represents a nation or political power. And that represents France in Revelation 11. And France, this beast, is described as ascending out of the bottomless pit, which is another word for abyss or the bottomless pit where Satan is cast into during the millennium or abusos in the Greek. And though this word is always in reference to the devil, to Satan. It is the place of the devil. And so even in the way that France, atheistic France, is described in, in, in prophecy and revelation, it is described immediately as, an, as a secular political power that comes from the place of the devil. And so clearly the French Revolution was under spiritualistic influences. We're going to confirm this uh, with another statement in just a moment. But as an aside here, I just want to also mention Daniel 11 also, uh, Daniel 11 verse 40, also makes reference to France. And at the time of the end, which we know prophetically is 1798, shall the king of the south push at him, the king of the north, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. The king of the north represents the papacy. And in the year 1798, at the time of the end, a king or a political power would push at the king of the north. And this is synonymous with uh, the papacy receiving the deadly wound that we read about in Revelation chapter 13. And what nation took the Pope captive in the year 1798? Well, it was France. The French General Berthier took the papacy captive uh, and he died in captivity. And that marked the end of the 1290, or 1260 years excuse me, of papal supremacy uh, in the Middle Ages. And we, I will mention this. So the King of the South also represents atheistic France and the ideology that comes out of that. 
But I will also mention that we are still yet today currently living in Daniel 11 verse 40. Okay, so we are still living in this, this time of conflict between the king of the south and the king of the north. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. So let's go back to see if we have any confirmation that the French Revolution was actually under the influence of Satan. This is from Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 192. The same master spirit that urged in the massacre of St. Bartholomew led also in the scenes of the French Revolution. Satan seemed to triumph. Now he appeared in a new guise. In France arose an atheistical power that openly declared war against the authority of heaven. So clearly, although they were atheistic and in no way believed in the supernatural, France, you know, by legislative decree, they decreed as a nation, the first one ever, that there is no God, right? They declared war against the authority of heaven and they were under, we're told here, under the direct influence of Satan. And they, in so doing, they sought to become as gods, right? They kicked God out and uh, we know the history of what occurred in France. Now, it's interesting because there's also this statement that I found in Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 13. This is Manuscript 12 from the year 1898. And Ellen White writes, Such men as Voltaire, Hume, Rousseau, and Byron were under the training of Satan. They were under the training of the great enemy of God and man, the acknowledged leader of the principalities, the powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this world. Why is this significant? Well, number one, it's because this morning, this illustrates that spiritualism can be transmitted unwittingly because all of these people are, are atheistic or at least deists, uh, philosophers, infidel philosophers. And they were under the influence, under the training of Satan, even though they didn't really believe that he existed. They were secular. And more than that, at least definitely the three names, Voltaire, Hume, and Rousseau, these are philosophers that influenced the revolution. They were sort of the brain trust that had a significant influence on the things that happened during, and the belief system and, and what occurred during the French Revolution. So you see, Satan, when we talk about Satan's influence in the French Revolution, he was not just in the mobs, in the anarchy, in the, in the, in the massacres. He was, in, he was there too. But Satan actually trained the infidel philosophers that laid the intellectual groundwork for the revolution. So this confirms what we've been talking about all day today about how transmissible spiritualism is, how insidious and pernicious it is. And the French Revolution happens to be an example of when this, when it all sort of comes together. We see it come to a head because God has been completely taken out of the mix. And also it shows the danger of the press, right? The media and how spiritualistic ideas can just rapidly spread and create literally a revolution. And in the Book of Great Controversy, there's an entire chapter on the French Revolution. It's chapter 15. You can go and read it for yourself. But the question is, can we see the viral marker of spiritualism in the French Revolution? I think we've already started seeing elements of it. But the thing is, France held many noble values and ideals. But divorced from God, these ideals became corrupted. And without God, they were unable to actually effectuate those ideals. For example, they elevated human reason. Now, is human reason a good thing? 
Well, yeah, I certainly hope so. Because God says himself, come now, let us reason together. But without God in the mix, human reason led them headlong into atheism. Well, they had liberty as a value, but without God, liberty became license. They had a value of equality, but without God, equality turned into equal despair. Everyone was equally impoverished, equally in fear uh, of being, you know, getting their heads chopped off, for example. And without God, virtue became vice. And then without God, justice became merely a pretext for vengeance against the perceived oppressors of the people. This is what happens when God is divorced from society. And the guillotine that we have here on the, on, on the slide here became the symbol of the French Revolution. The guillotine became the tool of choice in advancing the utopian dream, right? The ideas, the, the uh, noble ideals of the French Revolution. And during the Reign of Terror, blood ran in the streets. If you dissented, or even if you were suspected of dissent, you were led to the guillotine. And so this is important because without the power of God to convert sinful hearts, the French Revolution is a very you know, clear picture that mankind will always resort to force and to violence and to persecution. That's just fallen human nature. That's who we are without God. And this leads people to coerce other people's conscience. And this is what the, the guillotine symbolizes in the French Revolution. The guillotine symbolized the desire for men to control other men's thoughts, other men's consciences and beliefs. If you don't agree with us, we're going to kill you. And why is this significant? Because when man gets to the point of coercing someone else's conscience, it is like the terminal stage of the virus of spiritualism. Because when man has made himself to be God, and when man has come to a point where my, my standard of right and wrong is the absolute because I've made myself God, then it is only a half step to get the, to the point where we are now violating other people's conscience to make them believe as we do, to think as we do, to speak as we do, right? So this idea of coercing the conscience, and as you, can, as you know, this is going to be a major issue in the last days, in the final crisis, we see that this is the virus of spiritualism when it has become a terminal condition. It is spiritualism's deception or Satan's deception that you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, taken to its logical conclusion. And so I want to ask you this question now. We put this next picture side by side. Do they look familiar? Do they look similar to you? We have the guillotine on one side and then the stake on the other. Interestingly enough, the first guillotine in France was set up on the very spot where Christian martyrs were burned at the stake centuries before. And both of them represent the same spirit of coercion. Both are instruments to persecute and to enforce compliance through force to coerce people's consciences. So what do we see here? Both the papacy and atheistic France both believed the same essential lie of spiritualism and both ended up in the same place of coercing the conscience. You see the similarities here. The papacy and atheistic France were both under the influence of the same power. The guillotine and the stake both represents when man 
becomes God and takes the place of God. And there's one other important note to mention. The, the guillotine and the stake also represent something else. And that is that they represent that the state has been made God. The state has become God. Let me break this down. You see, without God, the French had to turn to the most powerful of human institutions to enact their biddings because they have to use force to coerce other people when the power of God is no longer in the picture. And what is the most powerful human institution? It is the state. And so the French Revolution is all about revolutionizing the state, right? Revolutionizing the state in order to create a utopia to accomplish these noble and, and upstanding ideals that originated from this godless philosophy of secular philosophy that man is able to basically create a perfect environment for ourselves. Now, Christianity became corrupted when it turned to the state to do its biddings. You remember the origin of uh, the apostasy that led into the Dark Ages, during the 1260-year reign of the papacy, when uh, the Pope took the place of God, how did that begin? How did that power begin? Well, it, was be it began when it received the power of the state at the beginning of the 1260-year prophecy. So you see, the union of church and state in the papacy led to persecution. It led to the violation of the conscience. And when the mortal wound was enacted on the papacy, what did that mean? It didn't mean that the Pope was, you know, the papacy was completely abolished. It simply meant that the, the civil power of the state, the, or the civil power of the church was taken away, right? The key similarity between the, uh, between the French Revolution and the papacy, between the guillotine and the stake, the commonality here is they represent state power. So to break this down some more, the union of church and state in the papacy and the separation of church and state in France led to the same result. Now, you must be thinking, now I thought separation of church and state is a good thing. And yes, you're right. It is a good thing and we need it, okay? But we need to just, this, my point is this. Just because someone says they believe in separation of church and state, they may not mean the same thing that you're thinking when you think the separation of church and state, okay? So whenever people champion separation of church and state, I think it's helpful to just sit down and just ask them, okay, what do you actually mean by that? Because in France, they believed in a separation of church and state. It was a hostile separation of church and state to the point where God was completely separated out of society altogether. And that's the wrong kind of separation of church and state. So the guillotine and the stake both represented a power using the state to coerce the conscience. Both were infected with the virus of spiritualism, which is Satan's DNA. It is man trying to become God by wielding the strong arm of the state. Now, the French Revolution has passed into history, but the principles of the French Revolution formed the basis for an ideology that proliferated throughout the next century. And of course, I'm talking about Marxism, uh, which is a refinement of the uh, principles of the French, Re French Revolution by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. And this led to the proliferation of communism in the 20th century. And as Karl Marx famously said, he believed that religion is the opiate, opiate of the masses. 
So again, we hear the separation of church and state and communism certainly was very antagonistic to the church. And it was an idea. Communism and Marxism is this refinement of this idea that man is able to socially engineer a utopia on earth. And through various means, economic means, cultural means, you know, through the military. And it has always, wherever it has been experimented with, led to totalitarianism, tyranny, and persecution, and importantly, the violation of conscience. So the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Maoist Cultural Revolution in Cuba, Latin America, Southeast Asia, everywhere, North Korea. And this is also represented by the King of the South, of which we mentioned in Daniel chapter 11. This is always the natural consequence when man tries to make himself God. And I'll hasten to balance the statement by saying, and this is exactly the same result whenever the church is given state power as well. When church and state unite, it always results in the same thing. And that represents the king of the north, right? Coercing the conscience. So man, let me summarize this whole section like this. Man seeking to coerce the conscience is merely the logical conclusion of the virus of spiritualism, of this belief that man can replace God and be our own moral arbiters. And so when man seeks to coerce someone else's conscience, man will always turn to force to enact that, con- that coercion. And ultimately, the most powerful of human forces, that is, of human institutions on the earth, will be the power of the state or of government. And this is going to be a significant factor in the end time scenario. But last day events, page 95, I read this interesting statement. It says, let all who would understand the meaning of these things read the 11th chapter of Revelation. And there it is. What is the 11th chapter of Revelation all about? It's about the French Revolution. Read every verse and learn the things that are yet to take place in the cities. So this passage is taken from a place where Ellen White was encouraging people to move out of the cities in the end times. And she says that we should expect the same spirit that actuated the French Revolution to be manifested again, especially in the cities. What is that spirit? The spirit of coercing man's conscience, of taking God's place in being conscious for someone else and then turning to violence, to force, to, uh, you know, quote-unquote, using the guillotine to force enforce compliance. And also, this reminds us that the king of the south from Daniel 11 is still alive. We're still living in Daniel 11 verse 40. The battle between the king of the north and the king of the south continues. I also find this statement in the book Education, page 228. It says, at the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. So this statement tells me that the whole world is at risk of witnessing a struggle similar to the French Revolution. And the first half of the statement describes circumstances in the world and talks about you know, um, economic circumstances and social inequalities in, the, in, the, uh, in, in society that, that seems to mirror France at the Revolution. And 
This statement, I think, certainly applies and encompasses the various Marxist revolutions that swept around the world in the 20th century, but does it preclude the threat from rising again? Okay, that's the question here. And so the key, I believe, is this idea, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution. What are those same teachings? Is there a clue from the spirit of prophecy? Well, let's just scroll up. We just have to go back two paragraphs on the very, in the very same passage. So this is education page 227 now. She writes, Spiritualism asserts that men are unfallen demigods, that each mind will judge itself, that all true knowledge places men above all law, that all sins committed are innocent, for whatever is, is right, and God does not condemn. Multitudes are thus led to believe that desire is the highest law, that license is liberty, and that man is accountable only to himself. It's interesting because in this passage, can you see the viral marker of spiritualism? Do you see Satan's DNA shining through? This core belief that you shall be as gods formed the foundation for the teachings of the French Revolution, the atheistic humanism, you know, human-centric philosophy. And, and it was promulgated, I might add, by those infidel philosophers that we uh, read the quote about earlier. They were trained by Satan. And we're told that these same teachings may involve the whole world in a struggle that is similar to what occurred in France. And the notion that man knows better than God, that man can take the place of God. Spiritualism is the core, the root philosophy of it all. And I find it fascinating that in, in the immediate uh, preceding passage to that quote we read about the French Revolution and the same teachings in the French Revolution, Ellen White talks about spiritualism. So is there a connection between spiritualism and secularism? And is it possible that spiritualism's influence through secular uh, means and institutions and secular idea, ideologies and philosophies, does, is, that, is it possible that that influence that we saw in the French Revolution may yet still affect the world? Okay, that's a question for us to consider. But at this point, I think we are ready to dive into spiritualism and in the final crisis. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that spiritualism can be found in Christianity and in paganism. It can be found in philosophies and ideologies of the world. It can be found in scientific circles, in legislative bodies and states. Spiritualism is already pervasive in popular culture. And the whole last section we have discussed, spiritualism is also found in secularism, manifested through secularist ideas. And here is a statement from The Great Controversy, page 588, that is very interesting. It says, The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. Hmm. That last phrase, trampling on the rights of conscience. Does that sound familiar? 
man seeking to coerce the conscience of someone else? Do we already get a flavor, taste the flavor of the Satan's DNA shining through here? So we know that, and we know that the trampling of the rights of conscience essentially represents the Sunday law. When we are forced to violate our belief in the law of God and the obedience to the law of God. But notice that what effectuates, what promulgates and causes the Sunday law? We're told it is a threefold union. There is Protestantism, there is Romanism, and then there is spiritualism. So we see that spiritualism is an equal partner in this terrible triumvirate, if I could call it that, in the end time scenario. And remember the list that we just read in the previous slide. Spiritualism encompasses vast swaths of society. And now we can know that all three of these belief systems are undergirded by the same philosophy. And we see that Protestantism and Romanism will not act alone, uh, but there is a third power in this trio. And you know, I used to think in reading this passage that when spiritualism is mentioned here, it is only referring to fire from heaven, like in Revelation 13, uh, the you know, evil spirits like frogs uh, deceiving the world, end time miracles, miracle healings, a- evil angels masquerading as the dead saints, Satan impersonating Christ. Like I thought that's the spiritualism is just someday down the line in the future and only for those people who don't know about the state of the dead. Uh, and maybe, you know, that's when the occult and the mystics and the secret society, they'll come out, all come out of the woodwork at that point. And I often, you know, associated the secularists as not really even in the mix. Like they're just hanging out somewhere else. But when the miracle starts happening and fire comes down from heaven and signs and wonders are happening, the secularists would just begrudgingly and haltingly just acquiesce. They're just like, fine. They're dragging their heels, right? Uh, to finally give in to the religionists' crusade. Now, you know, I think a lot of that is probably still true, right? I I don't necessarily feel like that's incorrect. I just feel like with the study that we have gone on so far in, uh, in, in spiritualism, that this view may be overly simplistic, that there is another layer to this, that we can go a little bit deeper. So on the very same page, Great Controversy, page 588, so in the same flow of the same thought, Ellen White writes this, interestingly, Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power, and they will see in this union, referring back to the threefold union, a grand movement for the conversion of the world. So interestingly, notice the the different construction that Ellen White uses here. In the previous passage, she said Protestants, Roman power, and spiritualism. And here she says Papists, Protestants, and worldlings. So it certainly looks as though Ellen White is associating spiritualism with worldlings. And what are worldlings? In short, they are those who are opposed to God. And I believe it is not too much of a stretch to say that they would include secularists. So this gives me the picture that the vast deception at the end of time, this threefold union, is something that's broad enough to catch everyone in its net. It's not just for the religionists. 
It is a willing coalition between religionists and secularists. Okay, that's what I see in this statement, and it's interesting because when we look at you know papists and Protestants, we view them as you know religion, and then worldlings and secularists, we think of them as you know secular. And as Adventists, I believe we have you know a a reflexive tendency. It's just unconscious tendency. To map these two categories of religion and secular neatly onto the two political parties in the U.S., right? You've heard it before: the religious right and then the secular left. Now, whether I think it's important to mention that this distinction is not something that's found in the spirit of prophecy. There, you know, the Republican Democrat Party of today certainly did not exist like they are now in her day. So she never really mentioned it. This is a, like I said, a reflex. A reflex. This is just sort of our intuition of why we group things this way. However, when we have this view, and then we couple it with this belief that the only threat in the end times will come from the religionists, then we have a. I think a, we come to a logical conclusion with that chain of reasoning, a conclusion to think that the "quote unquote" secular political party must therefore be a bulwark or a firewall against the Sunday law or the trampling of the rights of conscience. I think you understand what I'm getting at. Like this is the reflexive Adventist chain of thinking based on uh, you know the pieces that we have in play. But I like to suggest that perhaps we need to reevaluate some of our assumptions here. Number one, like I mentioned, the spirit of prophecy does not neatly categorize, you know, a religious party and a secular party. But putting that aside, is it truly sensible to believe that only one political party is capable of passing the Sunday law, while the other one cannot? Does one political party have a monopoly? On the final events, like will the culmination of the six thousand years of Earth's history, of the entire great controversy between Christ and Satan, ultimately come down to political operatives in a specific party? Like just just sit there and think about that. How utterly ridiculous it sounds, because it is. Or more than that, like. Is it really up to a specific president, or maybe a Supreme Court justice? Is that really what the Spirit of Prophecy is teaching us? Like, do we really think that the devil is that incompetent? Do we think that God is that powerless? And if we think that political parties have that much power and control over the destiny of the universe, it sounds a little bit like. We might be inadvertently placing politics and political parties in place of God, <laughs> and that sounds a little bit like what we've been talking about all you know this session. This, the the viral marker of spiritualism. It's it's kind of laughable to think that God and the devil, two of the most powerful beings in the universe. Is somehow waiting or dependent on, let's say, the election of the next president of the United States. Just sit with that for a minute and just contemplate how 
utterly unrealistic and unbiblical that way of thinking is. What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that there is a threefold union that is told, talked about in the Book of Great Controversy, and it is a willing coalition between people of all stripes and belief systems. So the picture here suggests a universal coalition of right, left, and center, all right? Of religion and of secularism. And to make this abundantly clear, what does the Bible say? Revelation chapter 13, verse 14 says, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. The people that dwell on the earth want, or they are the ones that clamor for the image to the beast, which is the union of church and state. To make this abundantly clear, Great Controversy, page 592 says, even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. The whole world will wonder after the beast. The people will demand the Sunday law. The people will demand from their politicians, and the politicians will simply give the people what they want. That's the picture that is given to us in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. So how do you suppose Satan controls the people? Well, it's through this threefold union. And this threefold union includes Protestantism, Romanism, and spiritualism. And hopefully by, the time, by this time you see how spiritualism actually undergirds the philosophy of all of the above. Now, I really, need, I really want to drill a little bit deeper into this. So we're going to read this passage from uh, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 451. And you will notice that the first half repeats what we've already read, but the second half expands on the idea of trampling on the rights of conscience. That's what we read in the first statement, and this expands here. So what does it say? When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. There is a lot to unpack here. But first, we see right up top the same threefold union that we read about earlier. Protestantism, Romanism, spiritualism, joining hands. So mental picture. They're like ring around the rosy. The three of them are holding hands with each other. And this is the threefold union. But this passage makes it clear that there is something that stands in the way of the trampling on the rights of conscience. There is something that gets in the way of the final events. And what is that thing? It is the U.S. Constitution. That's exactly what it says here by the pen of Ellen White. So the U.S. Constitution, according to this passage, must be neutralized first before the final events or the Sunday law takes place. So what's so significant about the Constitution? And what does this have to do with our talk tonight. The structure, right? Constitution means structure. So the Constitution defines the structure of 
the government. But it's not just how the government works. It is uh, the structure that effectuates the principles that were outlined in the Declaration of Independence. I believe it was Abraham Lincoln who once said that the Declaration of Independence are like apples of gold in a frame of silver, which represents the Constitution. So the Constitution is the framework by which the nation can uh, effectuate the values and principles and ideals that were articulated in the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence clearly states that we have been given inalienable rights by our Creator. All men is created, have been created equal, and we have been given uh, inalienable rights by our Creator. And the state or the government's role is to protect those pre-existing rights. So the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution put together makes clear that the state does not grant us our rights. Our rights pre-existed government. It came from God. The rights came from God. And so the Declaration of Independence, and by extension the Constitution, recognizes that God is a power greater than man or the state. Now, does this sound in contrast to anything we've talked about tonight? Well, yes. It is, in, it is a direct deterrent to the underlying philosophy of spiritualism that man can be as God. So you see how now why the Constitution gets in the way of the trampling on the rights of conscience. And how does the Constitution accomplish this? Well, it is through two great principles. The Constitution protects the rights that have been given to us by God, which includes the liberty of conscience, through the two great principles of Protestantism and Republicanism. And that's what it says here in this passage, a Protestant and Republican government. And it's important we have to make this distinction. When she says a Protestant and Republican government, she's not talking about a state church. It's not like we have a national religion of Protestantism. That's not what she means. She's talking about the principle of religious freedom. That's what she means when she talks about Protestant government. And then Republican government, we're not absolutely not talking about the Republican Party. It's talking about the Republican form of government, of representative self-government. And to tie it back to Revelation chapter 13, we, we know that the beast has two lamb-like horns. Well, these are it. The principle of Protestantism and Republicanism, of religious freedom and civil freedom, constitute the two horns, Christ-like, lamb-like horns, of the United States of America. And we as Adventists, we focus a lot on the First Amendment right of religious liberty and of freedom of conscience and of the separation of church and state, uh, which is very valuable and very important. And I think we focus a little bit less on the Republican horn. Which, and what is that? The Republican horn is talking about those mechanisms of government, of civics, that protects the rights of every individual protecting the rights of the minority. And if you think about it, the smallest minority is the individual. So these are through uh, principles like, you know, representative self-government and checks and balances, the separation of powers and federalism and uh, limited government. You know, there, there are plenty of other principles that you, you learn about in, in civics class, I'm sure. But this Republican horn of civil liberty ensures that there can be no tyranny by a king, and also no tyranny by the mob. And when I say mob, what does that mean? 
It means pure majoritarian rule, where a simple 51% can terrorize the other 49%, i.e. French Revolution, right? That's French Revolution was mob rule. And so here, the United States Constitution protects the religious liberty of all of its citizens because there are mechanisms in place as represented by the Republican form of government that ensures that the system itself will uh, not simply cave in to tyranny by either a king or a despot or a dictator or to a uh, simple majority mob rule. And Adventists, we rightly worry about the coercion of our conscience, which is the Sunday law. And so we watch very carefully that Protestant horn, right? Religious liberty horn. We watch it like a hawk and, and we, we value it very highly and rightly so. But how will the legislation for Sunday worship be passed? We have already read the statement, it will be done by the will of the people. Them that dwell on the earth, we're told. So this signals to me that there will be a breakdown of the Republican horn that leads to the erosion of the Protestant horn. Because it shows me that the safeguards protecting the freedoms and the liberties of the minorities, of the individuals in this country, will be gone. And this also tells me that the two horns go together. If we lose one, we lose the other. Okay? So what... So wrapping it all up, what is the significance of the U.S. Constitution? It is simply this. The U.S. Constitution describes a government that's powerful enough to protect our rights, but not so powerful that it can take them away. And in so doing, in creating this form of government, it safeguards the government from fallen human nature. And it, it is a safeguard from our carnal desire to make ourselves as God. It prevents what happened in the French Revolution, and it prevents what happened in the papacy, and it prevents everything that happened in between, you know, with Marxism and communism. And this statement, again, 5T451, says that this threefold union will, will be a coalition that seeks to repudiate every principle of the Constitution. So this gives impression that there will be a ongoing, sort of a gradual undermining of the Constitution that paves the way for the final crisis. So what, the way I see it is, sun, the Sunday Law will not be the first violation of our constitutional rights. It will be the last. We can also think of it another way. The freedom of conscience is the most fundamental or foundational of the freedoms as found in the Constitution. And so when this freedom is rejected and abolished, it signals, it tells us that all of the other principles are also abolished or have been abolished. So when that protection goes, the freedom of conscience goes, it means we have made man. We have made the, the state to be God, just like the papacy and just like in atheistic France. So we ought to be fearful when the Constitution starts getting chipped away at because we know where it will lead. This Constitution of the Constitution, we are told, uh, the erosion, rather, of the Constitution, we are told, occurs uh, through the mechanism of this threefold union. And I want, to think, I want you to think about this visual. Protestantism grasp hands with the Roman power, which then grasp hands with spiritualism. 
the three of them are in a ring holding hands together surrounding the constitution and our freedom of conscience is surrounded and so just using this as an illustration right this is not necessarily a plain thus saith the lord but i think it's helpful for us to think about the end time scenario our freedom of conscience with the constitution stuck in the middle of this threefold union when we see the threats which direction are the threats coming from very simple it's coming from the left it's coming from the right and it's coming straight down the center it's all around is what i'm saying so continuing trampling on the rights of conscience so we tend to think that we are always only one step away from the sunday law and we also have this idea that the church state union is the only threat to our freedoms on the horizon and it is a great it is the greatest threat we're told about in prophecy and the spirit of prophecy and it is the final step right that's why we call it the final movements the end times the last days it's the last crisis before jesus comes and yes i agree maybe it can very well be right around the corner and uh i'm not going to diminish that possibility one bit however i think we do need to pause and ask the question is it not possible that there may yet be other threats other steps to intervene between where we are now and the image of the beast and the church state union and the sunday law is it possible that there may still be steps in the progression to the erosion of the principles of the constitution is it possible there are more ways than one to repudiate the principles of the constitution is it possible that the devil is smarter than we are and that we haven't gotten him totally figured out rhetorical questions i know so this is the picture of the one step that i think often is in the avenus mind but maybe maybe it looks something more like this now i need to be very clear this slide is not intended as my prediction of how many steps we are away from the from you know the final events please don't take it that way it is merely an illustration to highlight that we don't know okay we just don't know all the details every single detail that will happen between now and then there's still a lot that can happen just imagine when ellen white first wrote uh the book great controversy until today how much has happened and so much of it she did not get the lord did not see fit to show her every minutia every single detail every historical event so we simply have to have some humility to realize we don't know everything however very important what do we know we do know that the bible and the spirit prophecy is explicitly clear very crystal clear unambiguously clear about what the image of the beast is the image of the beast will be a church state union where apostate protestantism seeks the power of the state in mimicking the system of the papal power in the dark ages that's why it's called the image to the beast it is very clear that it will be protestants who take the leading role in re- getting the power of the state to enforce its dogmas and it is very clear that the protest apostate protestantism in the united states will continue to chip away at the separation of church and state which is one sure way of repudiating the principles and the protections of the constitution we must continue to preach that truth that is the bible prophecy that is unequivocal that is crystal clear in the spirit of prophecy as well the, the we need to resist the movements 
to, to uh, join and unite church and state, okay? We need to make that, I, I need to make that very clear. However, having said that, again, the question is, are the Protestants the only threat to undermining the constitutional freedoms in the run-up to the Sunday law? Is that the only trick up the devil's sleeves? Is that the only thing he's allowed to do? Can there not be other challenges preparatory to the final crisis? Can it be that in our myopic fixation on the evangelical world and the papacy, that perhaps spiritualism in all of its guises, right, which includes secularism in other forms, may be laying the groundwork in preparation for that final crisis? Can it be that spiritualism is setting up the dominoes all in a line, ready for the final church-state union to come in and knock them all down? Might we be watching the front door so intently, but have forgotten and left the back door unlocked? Remember, this is a threefold union of Protestantism, Romanism, and spiritualism. To use a historical example, okay, imagine, would it have been any consolation to our Adventist brethren living in the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or in Cuba or North Korea or in China in any of these secular totalitarian countries, if we told them secularism is not a threat because they're not going to pass the Sunday law. What do you think they would have thought? How do you think they would feel? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that to leave the impression that secularism and also other forms of spiritualism To say that secularism poses no threat or that it is even a safeguard of our liberty of conscience, that's simply something that I do not find to be supported in history or in scripture. It downplays the devil's sophistry, which to me is frankly an irresponsible thing to do. And we might be thinking, oh, but that's in the past. That could never happen again. Well, remember, the king of the south, we are told in Daniel 11, is still alive and still at war with the king of the north. And we are, we are not told, No, remember, we are not told precisely how this conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south will end. We know that the king of the north will win, we know that much, but how will the conquest be effectuated in the end is not 100% clear. But let it be known, let us remember that neither of them Neither the king of the north nor the king of the south are friends to the saints. Both are persecuting powers. Both are under the influence of Satan. Both have a history of coercing man's conscience. So let's not be naive or arrogant about the devil's tricks. Okay, that's my point. Let's not pretend we've got everything figured out or, how, or that we know exactly how the future un- will unfold. All I'm trying to communicate here is that We need to study and preach the prophecies, yes, but we need to stick with what is clearly revealed, recognize the threats may be more than what we uh, previously imagined, that the Bible actually allows for that, and also realize that God hasn't given us every minute detail, every specific. And so perhaps it is helpful for us to not be overly dogmatic about things that have not been revealed. And so, just as an example, I am not one of those people that watch every little piece of news that comes out of the Vatican, Vatican, you know, the papacy. 
But I cannot deny that there has been a broad trend and consistent trend coming out of Pope Francis's Vatican that seems to be a direct reversal of what we saw with Pope John Paul II when he and Reagan uh, took down the Soviet Union in the Cold War, which I have, you know, often, I, which I believe, still believe, has significant implications in prophecy and the relationship of the King of the North and the King of the South. But what we see now is that Pope Francis and his policy priorities and his uh, uh, policy priorities and agreements are much more in common with the secular society and their priorities than the religionists. I don't, I'm not going to prognosticate and predict what that means. I don't know. But it does indicate to me that perhaps the threefold union of Protestantism, Romanism, and spiritualism may yet transpire in a way that is not exactly how we had imagined. And I think we need to allow for some of that to happen. Now, so what should we do? I think we need to remember to, be, to, to operate based on principle. That's the most important thing. So we need to defend the divinely inspired Protestant principle of freedom of conscience as found in the Bible and the Constitution. Okay? because of basically the, what we just read from the spirit of prophecy. Stand on the Bible principle. Stand on clearly inspired principle. And no matter, and we need to, to, to stand up for the right, no matter where the threats are coming from, whether it's from the left, whether it's from the right, whether it's down the center, whether it's the Christians, whether it's the pagans, or whether it's the secularists, we need to stand on principle and leave the consequences with God. And I know there's an election coming up in a few days, so I, I, it would be remiss for me to just interject this. And we need to stop it with our allegiances to political parties. There's a reason why LNY said it is not safe for us to vote with political parties, and that sometimes silence is eloquence on political questions. And also, I think we need to remember the, to resist the urge to co-opt prophecy in such a way merely to justify our own political preferences. The, the, it's too late in Earth's history for that kind of nonsense. It's as though we think any one party is immune to the devil's influence. They're not. The threat, the threefold union, is going to come from all sides. Them that dwell on the earth will set up the image to the beast. Let us stick with the Bible. Let us stick with the clearly revealed principles found in God's word. So wrapping up uh, this section on spiritualism in the last days, what am I saying? Spiritualism is the glue that's going to hold the end time coalition together. And yes, there will be spiritualistic manifestations. Yes, but there's more than that. It is the philosophy of spiritualism that undergirds this. This underlying worldview and belief system that says that man can usurp God, that man can tell other people how they ought to behave and think and believe. And it will be visibly manifested in the end times in the co coercion of conscience via the agency of a church-state union, a.k.a. a Sunday law. Spiritualism and the philosophy of spiritualism undergirds all of it. So whether it's Christian spiritualists or pagan spiritualists or secular spiritualists, they will unite at the end of time. And all during this time, there is going to be the Holy Spirit seeking to transform a people into Christ's image. But spiritualism is going to be seeking to transform the world into Satan's image. 
The saints are going to have the latter rain poured out, the Holy Spirit poured out in uh, latter rain proportions. And Satan is going to pour out his spirit with the evil spirits going to gather the world for the battle with God Almighty. So we need to beware of the virus of spiritualism. We need to introspect and think, do I place myself in any way in place of God? Do I put man's standard of morality, my self-interest and pleasure, or, or my reason, or, or, or earthly philosophies and ideologies, or naturalistic science, or church or religious leaders? Or do I place political parties or, or the government in place of God? Because look, if we have any of these things in place, we will cave during the final mark of the beast crisis. Because the whole point of that crisis is to test whether or not God has our supreme allegiance. That's the whole point. Will you obey God or will you obey man? Will you obey God or are you going to try to save your own skin? That's going to be the test. So what is God's treatment plan? What is the therapeutic that is at our disposal looking at how deep the sophistry of spiritualism really goes? Well, it's the three angels' messages. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, is saying with a loud voice, the first angel, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Right off the bat, the first angel says, fear God. In just those two words, the angel cuts off at the knees the deception of Satan that says, you can be as God. The first angel says, "Uh uh-uh, man shall not be as God's. You must fear God. And give glory to him because there is only one true God. He is the creator God and we will be held accountable to him according to his moral law in his judgment. And he is the only one who is allowed to control our consciences. Number one. And then the second angel flies in and says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And yes, Babylon includes the papacy and includes fallen Protestantism. Yes, but what else? Does Babylon include? Revelation 18.2 And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Babylon includes more than just the papacy, more than just Romanism and Protestantism. It also includes all varieties of spiritualism. Babylon is religious and spiritual confusion. And we read in our message this morning that Babylon deceives the world through her sorceries. So spiritualism is certainly a part of uh, Babylon. And I heard another voice from heaven, Revelation 18.4, saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. So a part of the second angel's message about the Babylon being fallen is our message to call people to come out of the tyranny of Babylon. Come out of all forms of religious confusion, of fallen Christianity of all stripes. Come out of paganism of all stripes and come out of the spiritualism of secular worldviews and deceptions as well. What about the third angel? The third angel says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, Revelation 14, 12. They keep the commandments of God. And the very first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Man shall not make himself to be God. Man shall obey God 
and keep his seventh day Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment, and not take his name in vain and not bow down, make any graven image and bow down to them. The first four commandments cuts off the deception that man shall be as gods. And the saints, of course, will keep all of the commandments, including the first four, as well as all 10. But that's not all the third angel's message is about. First Selected Messages, page 372 says, Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. So we're told that the third angel's message is also the message of justification by faith. And you must be wondering, now what's the, signif- what's the significance about that? Great question. The faith I live by, page 111. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Justification by faith is the antidote. It is the anti-venom to the devil's original venomous lie that man can be as God's. Justification by faith shows us our nothingness and our complete dependence on Jesus. And that's the message that undermines Satan's kingdom of lies. So God's treatment plan, what's the the therapy, the course of treatment for end-time spiritualism? Number one, to fear God. Give glory to Him. He is the judge and worship Him. Man shall not be as God's. And we do not get to dictate the moral standard for ourselves. We are to call people out of Babylon and we are to reject her sorceries. And we are to keep all of God's commandments, including the first four, which reminds us that we are the creation and He is the Creator God. And finally, justification by faith. This precious message which lays our glory in the dust and helps us recognize our nothingness and our entire dependence on Jesus. The antidote is the three angels' messages. The three angels' messages provides the philosophical worldview that can counter the virus of spiritualism. It is the message that neutralizes Satan's most effective lie. And friends, our job is to tell it to the world. That is our job. That is our mission. You shall be as God's spiritualism's end time deception. Thank you for sticking with me through this marathon. I invite you just to bow your heads now as we conclude with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you have not allowed us to follow cunningly devised fables. You have not allowed us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. We're thankful that he which is within us is greater than he who is in the world. And we're thankful that the seed of the woman has already crushed the head of the serpent and we can completely depend and rely on him. Lord, we have understood better now the deep and sophisticated sophistries of the devil. His lies are pernicious and insidious and dangerous. And we pray, Lord, that we may not fall prey to his wiles, that we will be intelligent in our faith, we will have a firm foundation based on the Bible, on the spirit of prophecy, and on the three angels' messages. And we pray that we will tell it to the world. 
And I pray that we will learn to interact with the world around us based on those principles in such a way that we can give glory to you and prepare a people for your return. Lord, we know the time is short. You are coming soon. The final crisis is upon us. But may we, Lord, be faithful and not follow private interpretations and that we will stick closely to the uh, plain, uh, thus saith the Lord. And so, Lord, help us to study as we've never studied before. May your Holy Spirit fill us that he may uh, be a deterrent from the spiritualistic influences that inundate us in society all around us today. Help us to remain faithful. Keep us by your grace. And may we be faithful until you come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.